0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray.
1: Father, we do say, along with the things prayed and things sung already, blessed be your name for your great love for us, your people. We bless you for that truth. We thank you for that truth. And at the same time, we declare really that we do not know the the half of it. We do not know intellectually and we do not know experientially what your love really is, what it really is like, the depth and the breadth of its passion, its power, the great comfort, the security that it provides for us. We, We have heard some of these things and contemplate some of them but don't know the the fullness of it. And so we do pray again, would you expand our understanding? Would you meet us now? Would you open up the word to us, your your word to us, and speak from this ancient passage. And Lord, would you do something in particular, as we sang, I forget if it was last week or the week before, asking that you would show us Christ. Would you take this ancient passage before us and show us Christ from it? Spirit of God, would you intervene now here in this room and lift up in front of our eyes the lifted up one, Christ. So as I pray and I ask you to show us Christ and ask, us to, ask you to teach us something of your love, I am not praying two different things, but I'm praying the same thing. Would you show us Christ, your love to us? Would you show us Christ exalted, your love for us? Would you show us him in glory, in all the assurance and all of the security that that gives to us, as was prayed earlier, who are in Christ? And would you hold that out in front of us and and woo us to him with it, and those who are not in Christ? And surely there are some here in that category. Those who are not yet in Christ, Lord, call them to this beautiful, awesome, glorious, reigning, delivering Son. Show Him to us this morning from this passage. Cause our hearts to rest in Him, to worship Him, to be content with what You have given us in Him, everything. Lord, I ask you to gather our attention here, to to look at this passage and to understand it. And as it kind of opens up something large and massive to to see beyond just this room and to see beyond just the words on this page, to see the the eternal and the cosmic. That's hard, Lord. That's, that's not easy to see. We are often earthbound in our thinking and feeling and seeing. Show us more. Allow us to concentrate, to see more. Protect us from distraction. Help me to, to focus my thinking. Help me to see, even as I speak us from distraction, and protect us from sin. Lord, would you remove from us now, give us a moment to pause here as we think, Lord, cause us to see sin and to see it as a barrier and to forsake it and set it aside, that you could send your word running along a clear path to our hearts. Speak, we ask, show us Christ, we ask. Love us in that way this morning from your word. Make your word clear, Lord. Help me to express it accurately and clearly and honor your name in it and from it. It is in that name that we pray, the name given to the Son, this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name, amen. turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 2 and that magnificent statement about Christ that we find there sometimes this section in verses 5 through 11 is called the Christ hymn it is a a separate kind of distinct section we looked at the first half of it last week in addressing verses 5 through 8 very important for us because of how they hold up Christ as a model to us you recall that since chapter 1 verse 27 Paul has been elaborating on, unpacking this very important statement that he made there, that that one central command, only this, this is what I'm most concerned of, that you, you Christians, that you walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. That was his his literal wording there, citizens of the gospel. He's about a citizenship. He explained to us that we have a new citizenship, not defined by our nationality, our ethnicity, our culture, but defined by the gospel, and we are to walk in a manner that matches that, that's worthy of it. Which means, as he begins to unpack, that we are to live in one Spirit, centered in the Holy Spirit, all of us, arm in arm, joined together in a unified love about one purpose, the Gospel. We are to walk after that, humbly considering others more significant than ourselves, seeking to meet their true needs before our own, just like Christ. That's the flow of the, of the, the text from 127 on up through the middle of of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Christ the Son, in eternity past, as God Almighty, didn't regard that status as something to be held on to or as a card to be played, but instead did something remarkable. He made himself nothing. He set that right aside, and he came down as a slave, a person just like us. He humbled himself, and he exercised a remarkable, gentle, humbling, embracing lowliness, embracing shame, embracing death, even the death of the cross. All for the purpose of the cross, the saving of the people of God. We are to be like that. And that was the point in showing us Christ in verses 5 through 8, Christ is a model, but the story doesn't end there. 9 through 11 turns it. The, the lowliness and the humiliation of Christ is not the end of the story. It, it turns, and verses 9 through 11 give us that half of the story, making essentially this main point. Here's my main point for this morning. The Father has exalted Christ. This lowly and humiliated Christ, the Father has exalted Christ to fill up our joy and to bring himself endless glory that's that's the sentence there the father has exalted christ to fill up our joy and to bring himself endless glory the main point I'm going to work towards in verses 9 through 11. I'm going to make three observations from that, but first let me read the passage. I'm going to read all of 5 through 11, but focusing on the last half this morning. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Philippians 2. Let make three observations from that passage from verses 9 through 11. Here's the first one. "God the Father has intervened to lift up the Son." God the Father has intervened to lift up the Son. Verse 9 begins with, and therefore God, meaning God the Father, in contrast to the Son who had been the subject of all the previous verses. Verses 5 and following, we'd seen that it was all about the Son. Christ was the one who was equal to God, and Christ was the one who did not regard that as a card to be played, and Christ was the one who humbled himself and made himself nothing and came as a slave and submitted himself obediently to death. Christ did all that, and therefore, God as God the Father, God as response to that, decided to do something. For his part, it's the Father's turn now. In approval, desiring to honor the Son and his choices, God highly exalted him. Jesus the Son. Not just exalted. He highly exalted. There's a little bit of of an emphasis in that word. He gave him a status, a rank, a position that is extreme and high. This is one of the first places where, as I've prayed this morning, you have to see these words and then you have to see these words. God the Father took this one and has highly exalted him already. It's it's already happened. It's been done already. Referring not just to the resurrection, bringing him out of the grave alive. He did not just bring him up and leave him alive again, but he highly exalted him. This is the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus that's in view here. Jesus reigns, has been already enthroned as king in heaven highly exalted and more still in verse 9 and bestowed on him the name that is above every name God set on Jesus the son a name the name really the definitive article the is used in there twice gave him the name, the one above every name. He highly exalted him, not just brought him out of the grave, but highly exalted him, set him on the throne in heaven and bestowed on him, hung on him the name. So there's something very particular in view here, some some particular name. The idea of giving a name is about identifying something for what it is calling it what it is. Not, not giving it a name to make it something, but giving it a name because it is that. And perhaps even, there might even be a, a particular need to give a name where it's not obvious that's what it is. Or where it's been forgotten or overlooked or is, or is easily missed. For example, in our country, there's a man who lives among us called Barack Obama. That's his name. But at some point... We put on him the name President. Not to make him President, but because according to the various rules and procedures and whatnot, he was the President. So we call him President Obama. And there might be contexts, and I'm not taking any particular shots at anybody here, there might be contexts where we have to say, as a reminder, where it's been forgotten, That's Mr. President Obama to you. See what I'm saying with that second piece there? It is easy to overlook or to forget or to deliberately denigrate because perhaps some of us, I'm not again pointing any fingers, perhaps some here aren't very fond of President Obama. And we have to remind ourselves sometimes that's President. We've got to put the name on him. Not to make him President, but to remind he is the president. The father put on the son the name, not to make him something, he already was. But perhaps particularly to underline something that was very easily overlooked in the moments when the son, humble, empty nothing a slave submitting himself to these people in death even death on the cross as he hangs there naked dying humiliated it is perhaps easy to overlook this one is something so the father hangs on him the name to point out this is what he is and to remind where it is easy to overlook it is the name that is above every other name every other reality, every other being, every other, other authority sits beneath, under this name, under this sun. He has been lifted up, exalted, supremely so. Now there is much more to say about that and we will say it. But we pause here at this first place this first point here and and just stop and observe something what we're seeing here so far just in verse 9 is this humble lowly humiliated submitted son by God the Father then in approval lifted up exalted and hung over him. This is who he really is. Given a name. This son, surely, we're focusing on Jesus. It's unique to Jesus, so we must be very honest that we're not going to emulate that entirely. We're not going to become like him in those ways. But we're seeing something. There's a principle here. Held out in front of us that is repeated so often in the scriptures that we can't miss it. So I'm pausing here in the middle of something that is dramatically and completely focused on something wonderful about Jesus. I'm pausing here in the middle of that to to catch a point for us. There's a principle here. Maybe you can hear it in phrases like, the last will be first and the first will be last. Or more explicitly, You can hear it in 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves. This is speaking to Christians. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's he commanding? You, Christian, in your mind, humble yourself. Take this lowly posture. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Humble yourself, and God in time, in His time, will exalt. Whenever He deems it so, surely at the end, He will cause Christian think of this and rest in it, He will cause His lowly, humble, least and last on the earth servants. You. He will cause the least and the last, the humble and the lowly, to in due time, just in the right way, as He knows to be appropriate, to be lifted up, Exalted. Seated on high and named as what they are. You will hear. Right now, it is very easy and very common for us to actually be or to at least feel like. We are beneath. We are under. The, the world is not our friend. But you will at one time hear from God the Father Himself singing over you That says, come, stand, just like I lifted up my son, you in him, I lift you up too. And I seat you with him in the heavenly places that already happened, and now you realize it, and now you experience it, and now you walk in it. Named as you are, glorious children of the kingdom, no longer the scum of the earth. Like you might feel like right now. So, when you see verses 5 through 8 calling you, commanding you, in fact, like we talked about last week, give up all your rights. Say goodbye to your life. Which means, perhaps sometimes physically, but oftentimes say, say goodbye to all that you dream of and all that you aspire to and all that you think is, is how you were going to, to experience the next 50, 40, 30, 20 years. This is my plan, and I got to say goodbye to all of that? Yes. To follow Christ is to say goodbye to your rights and to say goodbye to your life and to receive from Him whatever it is that He gives. But He gives loss and pain and and humility and lowliness indeed. And in due time, He will lift you up. So cast all your anxieties on Him and let it go. He said to his lowly, humbled son, rise up, I will lift you up and name you for what you are. And he's going to say the same thing to you, his sons and daughters. So I say that because this is so common throughout the Scriptures. We can't miss that. But I say it also acknowledging that that's not really the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is about Jesus. But there's something in it for you, Christian, that backs up the commands to you last week about give it all away. You will get it back. Rightly. Whatever should be, whenever it should be, he will not abandon you, but he will grab you and lift you up cause you to shine like what you really are, his treasured children. So the Father has lifted up the Son. He has intervened to exalt him. He will intervene to exalt you too. Trust that. Now as we move on to the second point, we come back to Christ. Second observation. As planned, the Father lifted up the Son to spread everywhere the reign of Christ. As planned, the Father lifted up the Son to spread everywhere the reign of Christ. Verse 10 gives us the reason for the Father's action in verse 9. So verse 9 is what He did Highly exalted, gave him the name. Verse 10 says, why? So that at the name of Jesus, or literally in the name of Jesus, in response to, in regards to the name of Jesus, which can be a confusing phrase, sometimes it sounds like the name that the Father gave is Jesus. As if that's the name. So when everybody says, whenever anybody says Jesus, that, that's the focus. But that's actually what it means. It's, it's a possessive. It's Jesus' name, the one he's been given, the one he has, the one that Jesus has, so that in response to Jesus' name, which still hasn't been explicitly told to us, we only know that it's the name above every other name. We haven't yet heard what that name is. But when that name that Jesus has been given, when that name on Jesus is sounded or uttered or thought of in some way, has attention drawn to it, every knee will bow. Every knee, everywhere. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's That's everywhere in the heavenly realms, in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm of the dead even under the earth, everywhere you can think of, every being and every creation of every sort, sentient and otherwise, every knee everywhere will bow. The universal symbol of surrender, of submission. It it can be happy, it can be willing, it can be otherwise. It is the paying of homage and reverence. It is loyal surrender, submission from everything, everywhere, and every tongue will confess. Again, the totality of it is marked. Every tongue. Every tongue will declare, acknowledge, agree, own as clear and true will confess. Every knee down. Every voice, every, every tongue declaring. What? Lord is Jesus Christ. That's the declaration, and that's the name. Front-loaded, in the original language, it's front-loaded to give dramatic emphasis to it. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, Lord is Jesus Christ. The Father has hung on Him the name, Lord. That name which is above every other name everywhere. Not to make him Lord, but because he was the Lord forever past. Remember verse 6. He always has been, but it was quite easy to overlook that when he hung naked dying on a cross, looking like a slave and, and, and a pawn in some political game. It was not clear that he had the right to be regarded as Lord. It was not clear that he is the sovereign one reigning over everything. And so the Father has said, let me be extremely clear. That's the Lord Jesus to you. I will lift him up and enthrone him so that that is clearly seen. And I will hang on him the name so that when that name is sounded, every knee in front of Jesus will bow and confess, Lord! The Father wants that known and reckoned throughout all of the creation. This is the Father acting to lift up the Son and declare Him, to proclaim Him. He is Lord. I have already enthroned Him and I am making extremely clear this is the King and I want that spread everywhere into every corner of all of the creation that His reign may be vast and total. Now, there is... In, in the expressing of this, there is necessarily something that is a bit confrontational. But I hope not to miscommunicate and to be only confrontational. There is something that is confrontational, even to Christians, because we don't sometimes think of him as that. It is easier, perhaps more common for us to think of him as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Humble servant, savior, lover. Lord. Lord. So there's something that's a bit confrontational even for Christians, but certainly most of the knees that will be bowing throughout all of the creation and most of the tongues will be confessing do not like that. And there is significant confrontation there. But I do not want to only present it as confrontational because there is something glorious and marvelous. You perhaps recall... I said the main point I'm working towards this morning is the Father lifted up the Son so as to fill up our joy and to gain for Himself great honor. We'll come to that in a minute. So as to fill up our joy. Don't lose that peace in the confrontational. The confrontation must happen so as to break through something that then leads to the filling up of the human heart with joy. If it can be seen and embraced in time. So we have to consider what it is that the Father has done with the Son and to see the confrontation. But also, to, I plead with you, keep in mind, I'm, I'm pushing at joy here. Also, right next to that. I've sometimes heard this passage preached years and years and years ago. I heard this preached. This will date me. Somebody was, uh, in a very happy, kind of mean-spirited way, was saying, Phil Donahue's knee will bow. remember who that is (laughs) a long time back I said that I'm not that old but that tells you something about me there was something almost gleeful in that statement back then and need to be careful to not carry the glee in this moment every Every knee will bow. And we should, in seeing that, we Christians, in seeing that, should should find some joy in in a resting, releasing, hopeful way, but not in a gleeful, yeah, I'm going to get what's coming to them, non-Christian way. So don't carry the glee. Don't let me miscommunicate glee in this, even while I have to say there's some confrontation. Because the Son is the Lord. God the Father is extremely bent on showing that which is true of Him He has brought the Son out of the grave and set Him on the throne and has put into His hands the power of the kingdom and said to Him, March and conquer. Spread the realm. Think of the language of Psalm 2. He has given into the hands of the Son the scepter that will break every, shatter every clay pot on all of the earth. We don't yet see the every knee and the every tongue, but one day we will. It is inevitable. He is on the march bringing in the nations, putting down the rebellion. And the Father is even today causing and will one day completely fulfill the language of Psalm 24 of the Son. Lift up your heads, O gates and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The psalm asks. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. That is, Jesus is the King of glory. Jesus is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. Not Caesar. Which is unavoidably, for Philippian eyes, clearly carried in this passage, that statement. Every Roman citizen, like all the Philippians, every member of the empire, Paul himself knows that Caesar is the one who calls himself Lord of lords. And Paul just said, the name above all the names, Lord, has been given to Jesus. No Roman could miss it. That is a strong, bold statement to a man who is in Caesar's jail. He's going to go talk to Caesar shortly. Try to defend his life. Paul knows it's not Caesar. It's Jesus, and the Father Himself is the one who has named him that, has hung that over him, and made clear to all of us by raising him from the dead and lifting him up onto the throne. I can only speak the truth. This one, Jesus, is the Lord. And he holds it up in front of the church to remind them of that, to tell them in your situation, in your place, to tell us in our situation, in our place, there is one Lord, and his name is Jesus the Son. Whatever challenge, whatever authority, whatever power it is that hangs over you and presses in on you is not in charge. Isn't. is only a sub-power on a leash beneath the Lord. Do you think of it like that? Does it look like that to you when you bump into the Caesars of your lives? Often it doesn't. I think probably most of the time, we bump into whether they be people who are deliberately, overtly, angrily persecuting us or just people who are sneering at us. Whether, whether they're just kind of the challenges of life that tend to control our thinking and our living to rule us in that way. We bump into those things, and quite often, this, I, I think you, you'll probably reject us at first. I invite you to think about it a second time. Immediately forget we're Christians. We bump into... That, whether it be a human being, a person, a system, or just a problem, we bump into that, forget we're Christians, completely forget we're Christians, and begin to respond to this as the authority, as the dominant power, as the the commanding influence in my life, never even thinking, no. It, he, she, they Do not control me. Do not control my circumstances. Do not dictate what happens to me. He does. He may use these people. He may use this job situation. He may use this health conflict. He may use this this persecution. He may use all that, but he uses it as sovereign Lord over everything. It is alarming, I would suggest, how quickly we forget and live instead as if Caesar is Lord and he is not. Jesus is the King of kings and Jesus is the Lord of lords. Jesus is the strong and mighty Lord of hosts. He reigns. And the Father wants to make that very clear as He planned long ago. And I mentioned plan. It was in the the observation and I bring up plan again because what we're seeing here in Philippians, what Paul is writing about as he's saying the Father has done this now in raising and enthroning Jesus, that all was foretold 600 years prior in the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bible in front of you, you could flip back and look at this Isaiah 45. The Father is just doing a work on behalf of the Son to fulfill the ancient plan of Isaiah 45. In the last half of Isaiah 45, the Lord is declaring his uniqueness, that he alone is God and there is no other. It's kind of working through the Bible there. It's working through that section of the Bible in Isaiah, doing that in Isaiah 45. And then in verse 22, he says, this is the Lord. If you're looking at your English Bible, you see it's all where Lord is mentioned there. It's all capital letters, L-O-R-D. That's the Hebrew name Yahweh. Sometimes it comes out over as Jehovah in English. It's the name Yahweh, Lord. That's who's speaking. And he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. What's that word? To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's the word which Paul's quoting in Philippians, obviously. The Lord, Yahweh, is saying, To me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance to me. It's the Lord Himself saying that. He's saying, I will step into the world and speak a word to the ends of the earth. Behold me, the Lord. Turn to me, the Lord, to be saved. And I promise you, every knee one day will bow to me and every tongue will swear allegiance to me. I am the Lord. And God the Father, says Paul, In Philippians, is making sure that we don't get confused, that we understand that's Jesus, the Lord, to whom every knee bows, to whom every tongue confesses. He is the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. And so the Isaiah passage continues. If you're still looking at it, it's the next verse. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me. Righteousness and strength. So only in the Lord, that is in Jesus, righteousness and strength. Isaiah again, to him, that is to the Lord, to Jesus, shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Those who were his enemies, they come and they bow down, ashamed, but they bow down every knee. compelled to submit and Isaiah again and in the Lord in Jesus all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory now we have to capture what's going on here this is not just some cool connection between the two testaments wow that's nifty that you can look and find this in the Old Testament No. I mean, I guess it's kind of nifty if if you like that, but there's a point to it. The point to it is that from Paul's perspective, the Father is drawing all attention as he has planned all along to do to draw all attention to this Son, to lift him up in front of every eye everywhere with a couple of different effects. We see, one, every enemy that, that angrily gritted teeth against him and, and resisted him, every enemy is cast down in front of Jesus. Paul's trying to make clear, this is the one. God is bringing everything in submission to Jesus. And then secondly, and every child of God drawn to Jesus in whom we are justified and in whom we glory. What does that mean? Christian, think about it. I said to fill up your joy. That's where I'm coming to that. To fill up your joy. In him you glory. What does it mean to glory in something? Think of if you glory in your appearance. You are proud of it. You're happy that you look a certain way. You, you want everybody else to see it. You feel very confident in how you look. Very much at ease in social settings because, hey, I'm, I'm good looking. Glorying in your appearance. If you glory in your reputation similarly. To glory in Christ is to have Christ himself be the one that your eyes are set on, the one in whom you hope, the one in whom you rest, the one in whom you have great confidence as you step out into the world, the one, essentially, if I boil it all down, the one in whom you rejoice. And God the Father, says Paul, wants to lift up Jesus in front of your eyes, Christian, that in him you would rejoice, not just be saved, come to me and be saved, in him you are justified, indeed that, but also to glory. That you would rejoice and sing and give full-throated release to every hope that you have met in this Son, exalted known forever as the Lord, the Lord, strong and mighty, the deliverer of His people, the end of every enemy, the destroyer of death itself, the King, yours. Oh! Your heart was made to be filled with Him. And the Father wants Him lifted up to fill it, your heart. To draw your attention away from everything else that you think is Lord but ain't. To draw your attention away from everything that dominates you and holds you down and crushes you and causes you to be afraid and to sin. To be drawn away from that and to say, the Lord, the Lord, strong and mighty, to Him I bow down and pay homage to my great endless delight he lifts up the son to cast down enemies and to fill your heart and because he deeply passionately loves the son and it is right that the son be known in this way that the son be treasured by his people that the son rule over all of the earth that is right and the father knows that he is the Lord and he wants all honor that is due the Son to be on the Son. He doesn't want honor shared with all these other two bit Caesars. He wants the Son honored as Lord. He wants his people's hearts filled. He wants the enemies put in their place, set down, and removed. And so he exalts the Son to spread his reign over all of the earth. To spread this glorious name everywhere. It is the loving kindness of the Father to exalt the Son. His love to the Son and His love to His people. His love for His name. So we should give thanks to the Father for that. Which leads us to the third observation. A bit more brief here. Tells us the great end of all of this, the great goal. The Son will be honored as Lord to the great eternal glory of the Father. To the great eternal glory of the Father. The Son is highly exalted, lifted up, honored for the great eternal glory. Of the Father every knee bows verse 11 every tongue will confess that Lord is Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father that's the end as in goal the end it doesn't just end at Jesus is honored as Lord doesn't just end with his glory and dominion spread over all of the earth. and doesn't just end with Jesus worshipped and all the knees bowing and all the tongues confessing and all the enemies put down and all the people satisfied in Jesus. It doesn't just end there. That all happens so that, final step, to the glory of God the Father. And as we read that and say that, we are touching on some of the inner workings of our triune God. Within the one single true God, within that one being, one God only, the Bible is extremely clear, there's only one God, within that one being, Yahweh the Lord, there is, has been, and will be forever existing three distinct persons persons, not not people personages beings, is what I'm trying to get at Not, not humans, but not objects so we use personal pronouns he, not impersonal ones, it there are three persons in the one God Entities that are independently identifiable. The first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, even while they are inseparably united in the one Godhead. There is only one true God. For our purposes this morning, what we're here seeing is that God the Son is not God the Father. There's a distinction. Though God the Son, He is fully God. He is the Lord Yahweh. He is no less God than God the Father. He is in the very form of God we saw in verse 6. He bears the name Lord. But there is a distinction here, importantly so. And thinking about it sends us back into Contemplating ever so briefly the creation, fall, and the plan of redemption that is traced throughout the whole of the Bible. The Bible teaches us much about the Father and the Son. And much of it can be discerned from those chosen titles, chosen by God. We didn't assign the word Father to the first person of the Trinity, we didn't assign the word Son to the second person of the Trinity, God did. He chose the word Father. He chose the word Son because he knows that will communicate something to us about how fathers and sons interact in a family. So we're on to something and just noticing the words. Father and Son. The Father, Paul will teach us in Corinthians, is the head of the Son. You recall that passage where the father is the head of the son, and the, the, it's the same passage where it talks about the, the husband being head of the wife. So there's, there's an authority there. There's a structuring that is not co, but is about authority. Father, head of son, like we would expect given the words. There's a distinction there in authority and a distinction in role that is not a distinction in value or being. The Son is just as much God as God the Father, as we've already said. Just as much worthy of full worship as God. But there is a distinction in authority and in role. The Father is the initiating authority within the Godhead. And the Son is perfectly submissive to that authority, executing the plans of the Father. Both God, different jobs, if you will. He desires to honor the Father in all things and takes from the Father his perfect command and carries it out. It's a very broad topic. It applies to many, many things. We're going to narrow it into our focus this morning. Creation, fall, and then who initiates a plan to redeem a people and fix the fallen mess? The Father does. It is the Father who sends the Son into the world as bread come down from heaven to give life. Think of John 6. The Father sends the bread, sends the Son. It is the Father who chooses the elect, His people. It is the Father then who gives them to the Son, telling the Son that it is His will that the Son will save every single one of them and not lose a one. And it is the Son then who comes humbly setting aside his right to be regarded as the Lord comes as a servant to save every single one of those chosen and handed over people. It was the Father's will to crush him as Isaiah foretold. And then as the church acknowledged in prayer in Acts 4 Sovereign Lord that's their prayer in Acts 4. Who are they praying to? Well, the Father, as we'll see. Sovereign Lord, truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. I'm not praying to Jesus, I'm praying to the Father. We're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pilate, Jews and Gentiles, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is the Father who set up the whole plan of redemption, sending the Son to the cross, slain by sinful men. And then as we have seen, cursed and killed according to the plan of the Father, the Father then highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name because it was not obvious. Hung on him the name, the truth about who he really is. He is the Lord. It is the Father's plan throughout all of this good, glorious redemption. It is the Father's plan to send the Son and to crucify the Son and to lift up the Son and to cause the Son's kingdom to spread to cover every corner of the earth and to cause the Son's reign to put down every little piece of rebellion and to fill up the hearts of all of His people. It is the Father's plan. And finally at the end, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Jesus is right now reigning until it is all done. You can go read the the middle third of 1 Corinthians 15. In several verses there, Paul tells us, he reigns until he puts, Jesus That is, puts all enemies under his feet, finally even death itself. And then the end comes when Jesus the Son delivers this kingdom to God the Father. He says to him, as it were, mission accomplished. You created, Father. You desire to spread the glory of our name, our one name. You desire to spread the glory of the name throughout all of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that plan seemed broken by sin and rebellion. And then you sent me to fix it. Mission accomplished. Here it is. The world redeemed and fixed a people to the praise of your glorious grace. Verse 28, 1 Corinthians 15. And then, when all things are subjected to him, the Son, then the Son himself will be subjected to the Father, that God may be all in all. The end. the Son, fully God, has come into the world to gather all of the creation back to the Father and to place it with Him, the perfect image of the Father. With Him, bowed before the feet of God the Father Almighty. So that what runs through everything that he made is only and is fully the magnificent reflection of the glory of God. Jesus' great goal, God the Father's great goal, that God would be everything in everything, in every tree and in every bush and in every person's mind and in every inch of our physical bodies and in every sunset, all that we would think of and all we would see is God, praise God there would not be any hint of fall any hint of brokenness, any hint of oh that would be better if, no he will have redeemed it all and fixed it all Brought all of the creation to heal under his authority. Brought all back into the worship of God. It will all be to the eternal glory of the Father, the one for whom we were made, the one for whom we have been redeemed. Recall First Peter says that Jesus died to bring us to God. We would have communion with the Father is the Son's great hope. The one for whom we have been redeemed, the one to whom we will sing praises and lift up our voices in adoring thanksgiving and humble gratitude for His wisdom and power and great grace shown to us in the crucified and now crowned Son. All of this is an almost impossible work to describe. It is cosmic. That's why I prayed at the very beginning that somehow God would open up the heavens and allow you to see something beyond here. It is cosmic. It is a work that's been going on for millennia and will be going on forever and ever into the future. And you, Christian, You have a piece of it. Because God has chosen to send this son humble, to exalt him in front of your eyes, and then use him as king to bring all of the earth back into line with him. That is a good, good thing for you. There are 15,000 aspects of that that I don't understand and can't explain to you. Some of it I get. May God open your eyes to get a little bit of that. This lifting up of the sun in front of you is meant to fill your heart with hope and joy. Christian, and if you're not a Christian, to call you into the place now where you could find a joy. Facing the necessary confrontation, every knee will bow one day. Bow now for joy. But, Christian, may He open up your eyes to see a little bit more of this to rejoice a little bit more in the loving kindness of God to send His Son to save you and to deliver you into the place where one day everything will be right. That's what He's doing in His Son. Let's pray. God, we don't know the half of Your love We don't know the half of what you have done and are doing to send Christ to love us with him. But I pray for your people here this morning, for myself, that you would open our eyes to show us just a little bit more of that, to draw our hearts to you, even sometimes in in the great complexity and in the unknowns even in those things that we don't yet see clearly, we can still find hope and rest. You cause us to see them rightly. Like children who know their parents no more than them and are happy with that. You cause us to see that you know more and are up to more, and let us be happy with that and hopeful in it. Confront in your people for the sake of your people, the false lords, the false Caesars that control them. Confront in your people for the sake of your people the false belief that to go down into humility is to be lost forever. Give them confidence that you lift up in the end. You will name them for what they are, glorious children. Meet your people, Lord, with whatever need they have. As they reflect now, Lord, minister to them in their particular needs and build your church. May you be praised all in all. Glorious Father. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.